0: Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 294, Dogger Bank. We last looked at the situation in Europe back in episode 275, when Britain declared war on the Dutch Republic in December of 1780. The Dutch were not looking for war with the British. They had nothing like the military that they had a century earlier. Dutch officials mostly just wanted to trade and make money, but they were willing to do so with Britain's enemies. This included selling arms to the rebels in America, as well as trading with France, and that's the real reason why Britain had declared war in late 1780. When the war began, the Dutch Navy consisted of only 20 ships of the line, Although they had begun a massive shipbuilding effort before the war began, most of those ships were not yet ready to sail. Things actually got worse when the British attacked a small Dutch convoy in the West Indies in February of 1781. Dutch Admiral Willem Krull was killed in the action while trying to buy time for the merchant fleet to escape the British. Even for the ships they had, the Dutch had trouble obtaining crews for them. Most able seamen worked on better-paying merchant ships or had taken work on one of the many privateer vessels operating in the area. Since the government did not forcibly impress sailors like Britain did, it had great trouble recruiting enough men to sail their ships. The result of all this was that most of the Dutch Navy remained in port, ceding control of the North Sea to Britain. The Dutch had really hoped for a quick negotiated peace, with the backing of the League of Armed Neutrality. Once the war started, they got some talk, but little else. By August 1781, the Dutch economy was near collapse, with the end of all trade. Out of desperation, the government attempted to sail a merchant fleet out of Texel. Seventy merchant ships set sail, protected by seven Dutch ships-of-the-line and six smaller frigates. Admiral John Zoutman led the fleet. For several days, the fleet escaped British notice. Then, in the early dawn hours of August 5th, Admiral Hyde Parker spotted the Dutch fleet. Parker had been escorting a British merchant fleet from the Baltic Sea back to England at the time. The ships were at the time passing through a shallow area of the North Sea known as Dogger Bank. The 67-year-old Parker had spent most of his adult life at sea in the British Navy, During the Seven Years' War, he had served under then-Commodore, Lord Howe, in raids against the French coast. In the most recent war, he had led fleets in both Europe and the Americas, so he was a highly experienced officer. Upon spotting the enemy fleet, Admiral Parker ordered his merchant ships to sail for the coast and prepared to attack the Dutch fleet. The British Navy ships were not in the best condition. They had been at sea for some time and were due for repairs. Even so, this was the best opportunity the Dutch fleet had provided in the North Sea since the war began. Admiral Parker could not pass up the chance to attack. At the same time, Dutch Admiral Zeltman also saw the enemy and knew he would have to do battle with the British Navy. He also ordered his merchant fleet back to Texel as he prepared to do battle with the British line. By 8 a.m., both navies had formed lines of battle. The two lines fired as they passed by each other, then turned around and went for another round. This was brutal, close-in cannon fire. Both sides took heavy casualties. The attacks continued on each fleet for about three hours, before the Dutch fleet finally turned and retreated back toward Texel. The battle had given time for the Dutch fleet to withdraw Soutman had also inflicted enough damage on the British fleet that it did not attempt to pursue. The British fleet reported 104 sailors killed and 339 wounded. The Dutch reported 142 killed and 403 wounded. However, some unofficial reports state that Dutch casualties were over 1,000. Although all of the ships sailed away from the battle, one of the Dutch ships sank before it could return to Texel. Both sides claimed victory from the battle. The Dutch merchant fleet was able to escape back to Texel, but the battle also confirmed that Dutch trade continued to be halted for the foreseeable future. Upon his return to Britain, Admiral Parker openly criticized the Ministry for its failure to provide ships in good fighting condition and blamed his failure to capture the Dutch fleet on that fact. He was openly critical of Lord Sandwich, and made no secret of the fact that he hated the Prime Minister, Lord North. In an attempt to smooth over his hard feelings, King George offered Parker a knighthood and personally visited his fleet. Even with that personal visit, Parker was rather abrupt with the king, telling him, quote, I wish your majesty better ships and younger officers. As for myself, I am now too old for the service. The 67-year-old admiral did not take another posting until after the government fell the following year. A few months later, his older brother died, leaving a baronetcy to him. Parker should have stayed home, but when the new government offered him a posting as commander-in-chief of the East Indies, he returned to sea in 1782. His ship, the Cato, was last seen in Rio de Janeiro in December. After leaving port, the ship was never seen again. The presumption was that it wrecked at sea and sank with all hands aboard. Among the British leadership in London, support for the war was increasingly divided, but a majority still remained opposed to considering granting independence to the colonies in America. George III widely articulated this view and saw it as his role to stand firm against any talk of allowing his empire to crumble. The parliamentary elections of 1780 had seen gains for the Rockinghamites, who increasingly supported American independence as a necessity so that Britain could focus on its wars with France, Spain, and now the Dutch Republic. But Lord North's Tories still held a majority in both houses and continued to support prosecution of the war. And while the war continued to drain British resources, there was some reason for hope that it would not continue forever. If Britain struggled with its finances... That struggle was nothing compared to the struggles faced by France and in America. The enemy seemed to be surviving financially on next to nothing, and that really couldn't continue much longer. Further, General Clinton's capture of Charleston in 1780 gave hope that the southern colonies would come back under control, even if there was some fighting continuing there. The defection of Benedict Arnold that same year also proved to many that the rebel coalition was on the verge of collapse the North Ministry still felt it had a secure working majority. When Parliament opened in the fall of 1980, North attempted to replace the Speaker of the House of Commons with a much stronger supporter of the North Ministry. North's choice, Charles Cornwall, won the election decisively, defeating the former Speaker, Sir Fletcher Norton. In early 1781, the Ministry won votes supporting the war against the Dutch as well as continued funding for the overall war effort. Many opposition leaders even stopped attending Parliament, since there was little hope of any change. In March, Lord Hillsborough wrote to William Eden saying, The opposition is at present, if not dead, at least asleep. Since I have been in Parliament, I do not recollect a session half so quiet. Even an effort to conduct an investigation into loans raised for the war effort failed to pass a floor vote. At the end of May, as some news of setbacks in the South began to arrive, the opposition used it as an opportunity to grant the Crown powers to negotiate a peace with the provinces in North America. The majority saw this as an unnecessary display of weakness and voted down the motion. In June, as news of the British victory at Guilford Courthouse arrived, along with the news of the devastating casualties that greatly weakened Cornwallis' army. Opposition leader Charles Fox tried again, but as before, that motion failed. Even if Parliament remained on board in order to continue the war, Britain had to do what it could to keep even more European powers from lining up against it. France and Spain were the traditional enemies of Britain at this time, but in earlier wars, Britain usually had an alliance with other countries who took some of the pressure off of Britain itself. Prussia and Russia were among these countries that were traditional allies of Britain. Prussia was part of the Holy Roman Empire, which included almost all of the German-speaking states. Its powerful armies had been a key partner with Britain in the Seven Years' War. In this current war, however, most of Europe was setting out the war. If Britain could convince some of these other powers to go to war with France and Spain those countries would be unable to focus on Britain. Unfortunately, Britain could not get a fight started, and even had to worry about some of its traditional allies lining up against it if it could not respect their neutrality. Maria Theresa, the former Empress of the Holy Roman Empire, was focused on keeping Europe from plunging into a new war. Her title as Empress had vanished when her husband died in 1765 and her son Joseph II became the new emperor, Maria Theresa, however, remained a respected power on her own. I mentioned in an earlier episode how she had managed to thwart a war in 1779, when her son Emperor Joseph and Frederick the Great of Prussia almost went to war with each other over control of Bavaria. Now, Had there been a war at that time, France would have been treaty-obligated to go to war with Prussia again. This would have been to Britain's great benefit but Maria Theresa kept the peace and France could focus on its war with Britain. Maria Theresa also hoped to broker a peace to end Britain's war with France and Spain. Although she offered to mediate, none of the powers were willing to take her up on the offer. She sent diplomats to London, Paris, and Madrid, trying to convince ministers to end the war. She even lobbied her daughter, Queen Marie Antoinette, to use her influence at Versailles to encourage negotiations. None of the powers wanted to insult such a powerful leader, but they also did not see a negotiated peace as being in their self-interest. When the Empress died in 1780, the danger of war in Central Europe once again became more likely. Other leaders also sent out proposals for a negotiated peace. Britain received offers from Catherine the Great of Russia and King Ferdinand of Naples, Sicily. Maria Theresa had not been a fan of the revolution in America, nor of revolutions generally. It was hard enough to keep the royal houses of Europe from going to war with one another. It was so much worse when the people rose up against their own leaders to start a war. After her death, her son, Emperor Joseph, seemed to have a little more sympathy for the Americans. For starters, he referred to them as Americans in his correspondence, at a time when most other heads of state were simply calling them rebels. In a letter to Catherine the Great of Russia, Joseph seemed to sympathize with the poor treatment of the American colonies by Britain and said that he thought a British victory was impossible. Back in 1777, Joseph had traveled to Paris to visit his sister, Queen Marie Antoinette, and attempted to set up an unofficial meeting with Benjamin Franklin while he was there. British intelligence managed to prevent that meeting Even so, rumors of the meeting trickled through the courts of Europe. Although he continued to remain neutral, Joseph regularly commented in private correspondence that he thought the Americans would win and that the continuing war in America was proving disastrous to Britain. Thinking that Joseph might be amenable to some sort of involvement in the Americas, diplomats sent William Lee to Vienna in 1778. At that time, though, Maria Theresa was still alive and prevented any officials from meeting with the would-be ambassador. Any recognition of Mr. Lee would have been a tacit recognition of American independence and would have enraged Britain. Joseph was not simply a disinterested observer, though. The capital of the Holy Roman Empire was Vienna in Austria, and Joseph inherited the crown as King of Austria from his mother Maria Theresa when she died in 1780. Now, Austria today is a landlocked country, but in 1780, it held a coastal presence in what is today Belgium. At that time, the area was called the Austrian Netherlands. The port at Ostend in the Austrian Netherlands became a main neutral point along the west coast of Europe. Once France, Spain, and the Dutch were all at war with Britain, the result was a booming trade for Austria. All sorts of merchant ships wanted to fly a neutral flag that would protect them from enemy navies and privateers. Between 1778 and 1780, Austin saw a 700% increase in shipping. Profiteering in merchant goods as well as war supplies greatly enriched Austrian trade. Now, this new transatlantic trade under the Habsburg flag inevitably led to a controversy. On August 20th, 1781, a Massachusetts privateer called the Hope seized Den Erstein, a merchant ship that had left Austin under the Habsburg flag headed for the West Indies. Daniel Darby, captain of the Hope, sailed both ships back to Boston for review by a prize court. The court met on September 6th to determine whether the seizure was the legal capture of an enemy vessel or the illegal taking of a neutral ship. Darby argued that the ship was clearly British and carrying British-made goods, the captain of the captured Der Ersten, Peter Thompson, countered that there was no evidence that this neutral flag ship was British or that anything on it was British. This was all just made up by Darby to steal his ship and its contents. The court determined that the ship was owned by an Austin firm, but also found correspondence from English merchants that established this was just an effort to get around the French blockade. The case lingered until the end of November, when the court held that the ship was that of a neutral, but that its contents were English goods and could be seized. The split decision really did not satisfy anyone, since it was not normal practice to separate a ship from its contents. If the ship really was from a neutral country, then the privateer had no authority to take the ship in the first place and have access to its contents. The case was appealed to a U.S. court in Philadelphia, which did not hear the appeal until 1782. The appeals court eventually found that the ship's cooperation with English merchants violated its status as a neutral and could therefore be seized. The ruling essentially endangered all ships flying under the Habsburg flag. The British used this incident to get the neutrals on their side, arguing that the Americans had proven themselves simply to be pirates. Benjamin Franklin tried to turn the decision in America's favor, by trying to convince Austrian officials to send a diplomat to America to deal with future disputes on seizures. This would have created at least an unofficial diplomatic relationship with America. In the end, the Austrians did not do anything either way on the matter. They did not want to show a bias toward either party, hoping still to sit as a mediator of the war between Britain and its colonies in America. Diplomats continued their efforts to negotiate an end to the war. France seemed to be the most opposed to this effort, thinking that it had the advantage over Britain. By the end of 1780, with its finances in ruins and the Americans just begging for more of anything, France seemed more amenable to peace discussions. France also feared that Spain might be getting cold feet after its efforts to retake Gibraltar had come to nothing. Emperor Joseph's diplomats proposed a Congress of Vienna to take place in the summer of 1781. One of the biggest issues was how the Americans would be represented. Britain would not recognize any diplomat from the Continental Congress, which it argued was an illegal body. Negotiators suggested that each colony might send its own diplomat. That, however, was a non-starter for the Americans, who did not want their divided interests to be exploited at the conference. In May of 1781, diplomats sent out their proposal for a conference. The Americans would be invited to work out a separate peace between them and Britain. All parties would agree to a one-year armistice. British officials bristled at the idea of inviting Americans, and France disliked the idea of an armistice, since it only gave Britain time to regroup and rebuild its forces. Spain refused to consider anything that would not put Gibraltar as the main point of negotiation. In the end all the parties ended up rejecting the terms and the conference altogether. Instead, all parties wanted to wait and see the results of the 1781 fighting season before making any more efforts at a negotiated peace. Of course, all those efforts would fade away after the events in Yorktown later that fall. Next week, we're going to return to Connecticut as General Benedict Arnold makes one final trip to his home state to burn a town and slaughter some prisoners. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50. To get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show, part of the Airwave Media Network. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club George Davis, Mike Hager, John Salentano, and Michael Mulhern. I am also happy to welcome a new Alexander Hamilton Club sponsor the Sons of the American Revolution. The SAR is a group of descendants of those who served in the Revolutionary War. Their organization seeks to honor their ancestors and keep alive the memory of the American Revolution. So, thanks for joining the American Revolution podcast, guys. I'm also grateful to my Robert Morris Circle supporters, Lee Seam, T.J. Walker, and Joe Kelsey for their continued support and I'm pleased to welcome two new supporters at the Privy Council level, Dave Taylor and Douglas Earle. Like all my supporters on Patreon at the $10 level or higher, they will receive the first of their free monthly magnets, representing a flag from the American Revolution. Thanks also to Hugh Clark, Gerald Everett, Paul Kallenberger, and Jeffrey Voorhees for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I greatly appreciate all of your support, and for your good wishes. This week we focused on Britain and Europe in the summer of 1781. Most wars tend to have an impact on the rest of the world. This war seemed to be expanding slowly for years and was only getting worse. The rest of Europe wanted to see it resolved and really didn't care how. In Britain, the cost of the war was hurting the government politically, but the king's continuing vocal support to continue the war ensured popular support in Parliament and amongst most voters. British officials knew wars were expensive and built up debt, but if you could break your enemy financially before you broke, you would come out the winner. France and the American colonies really seemed on the verge of financial collapse. Britain had really given up long ago on crushing the colonial rebellion. At this point, they seemed more focused on cutting their losses If they could salvage the southern colonies and perhaps take a few islands in the West Indies, the result might not be so bad. As a result, Britain did continue to fight. For France also, the costs were mounting. France still hoped that Britain would crack first, and with the addition of Spain and the Netherlands to the war, France definitely felt it had the military advantage against an isolated Britain. Spain seemed to be willing to hold out until it finally recaptured Gibraltar, and that was still ongoing. The pain of all this fighting caused other European countries to feel pain thanks to the interruption of trade. We've already seen the League of Armed Neutrals get involved, and the Holy Roman Empire this week trying to broker a deal to end this thing. But none of the combatants seemed ready to negotiate. Sometimes a war just has to run its course until the combatants are so beaten down that they are willing to talk. That stage was still in the future from the summer of 1781. I hope it's not a spoiler for anyone, but Yorktown will certainly change that equation. This pre-Yorktown episode was my attempt to explain the situation in Europe before that event. My book recommendation this week looks more closely at how Central Europe and specifically the Holy Roman Empire, saw the American Revolution. It's called The American Revolution and the Habsburg Monarchy by Jonathan Singerton. This book takes a close look at how the imperial court in Vienna viewed the American Revolution, how it was impacted, its attempt at mediation, and the efforts by diplomats to use the empire to their advantage. The author, Singerton, is originally from Wales but is a European academic with an emphasis on the 18th century Habsburgs. Now the topic is admittedly a little obscure and as an academic work this book is nearly 350 pages but under 230 of that is actual text with the remainder of the book being extensive footnotes and bibliography sections. The book was published in 2021, but you can get a full e-copy on Archive.org since the book was released with a free Creative Commons license. Aside from discussing diplomacy, I did discuss one battle today, and that was the naval battle between the British and Dutch forces at Dogger Bank. If you want to read more about that battle, check out my online recommendation, The Battle of Dogger Bank, found on morethannelson.com. The site generally, more MoreThanNelson.com, looks at all things related to the Royal Navy during the American Revolution and through the Napoleonic Wars, so it's a great resource for all things naval from this era. As always, I've included links to my recommendations on my blog and website. Now, my question this week comes from Bob Schneider, who asks about No Taxation Without Representation, We spend a lot of time, as we should, on issues and events of taxation part, but we don't spend much time on the representation part. I do think at one point you said something about how even if representation had been offered to the colonists, they wouldn't have wanted it, fearing they'd always be outvoted. Well, Bob, I've discussed the issue of taxation without representation before, that's true, but it is a tricky issue and one that most students of this era don't understand well, so perhaps it's worth discussing again. I have tried to emphasize before that this really was not an issue for the colonies of taxes being too high. They really weren't that high. Of course, everyone would like their own taxes to be lower, but that was not the issue over which colonists went to war. Ever since they had been created colonial legislatures in North America had levied taxes on their own colonists. These legislatures were elected by the colonists, or at least the ones with property, much like the case in Britain itself. Britain had fought a civil war a century earlier over the issue of taxation. In that case, Parliament and King Charles I went to war with each other, primarily over the issue of whether the king could levy taxes on the people without Parliament. The argument at the time was that only Parliament could tax the people because the people were represented in Parliament. Any other form of taxation would be taxation without representation, and that would be considered a form of tyranny. If you look at that precedent from Parliament's perspective, it was basically holding that the English Civil War had established the precedent that Parliament had the authority to levy taxes. So when Parliament levied taxes on the colonies... That seemed perfectly acceptable to members of Parliament. The colonists, of course, viewed it differently. Parliament had authority to tax because it represented those being taxed. Parliament did not represent the colonies and therefore had no authority to tax the colonies. Colonists were represented by colonial legislatures, and so only those could levy taxes in the colonies. Of course, this was the disagreement that eventually led to war. Parliament felt that it had the authority to tax everyone in the empire, not just those who voted. And this is an easy argument to make. At the time, only about 3% of people living in Britain were allowed to vote, yet they were all subject to taxation. Parliament understood the right of virtual representation, meaning they represented all the people, not just the voters. Even so, as the political fight grew, there were suggestions about giving the colonies some representation in Parliament. During this pre-war era, Benjamin Franklin served as a colonial agent in London before the war, and he had several conversations with members of Parliament and other important officials on this topic. Franklin made clear that the colonies did not want representation in Parliament. Token representation would not give them any real power and full representation would be far too unwieldy. Franklin made clear that the colonies were fighting for taxing power to remain solely with the colonial legislatures. Of course, this would all remain under the authority of the king. When there was a national need, the king could call on all of his legislatures, just as he did parliament, to come up with the needed funds. If, however, the colonial legislatures had the power to say no, then this plan seemed unworkable to officials in London. So no, the offer of token representation in Parliament would not have worked. If the British leadership had attempted to work out a better system that would leave taxing authority locally, but give them some mechanism to collect needed funds for the needs of the empire on an equitable basis, I think this could have been worked out and would have avoided war. The British leadership, however, did not focus on legitimate colonial concerns. They were rather focused on the rioting and violence that was taking place in the colonies. They saw this as a time to compel law and order, not reach a new equitable power-sharing arrangement. Now, if the British government had been more powerful, this strategy might have worked. Unfortunately for the British, they underestimated the resolve and the power of the colonies and lost. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me, either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.